Hello, welcome to the Dear Writer podcast. I'm Sarah. And I'm Ashley. We're two aspiring collaborative authors sharing our writing journey with you. The ups, the downs, and everything in between. Whether you're just starting out or a more experienced writer, we hope that you'll find this podcast inspiring and thought-provoking. And here's the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Dear Writer. Today, we are recording episode 140, which is another of our author spotlight episodes. And today we have Sue Tidwell with us. So welcome, Sue. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be here. So Sue Tidwell is an award-winning memoir author based in Idaho. Her book, Cries of the Savannah, is a passionate travel memoir about her adventures in Africa. The tagline of her book reads, An Adventure, An Awakening, A Journey to Understanding African Wildlife Preservation. Hopefully, through this episode, we will also gain a small taste of this experience. When not at the keyboard, Sue can be found atop a paddleboard, enjoying the antics of her grandchildren or engaged in the latest outdoor excursion with her husband. So welcome to the show, Sue. I'm very intrigued to hear all about your adventures in Africa. Well, I always love talking about Africa, so I'm, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm also going to point out that you're wearing an elephant shirt, which is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed that too, and I was like, yes, that's very themed and I am enjoying that. (laughs) So how we like to begin with these episodes is by asking you how you first got started writing and when you decided to pursue it more seriously and started creating this amazing memoir and when you decided that you might like to get it published. Oh, well, to be honest, I had no intention of writing a book. I wrote these long... (laughs) adventure-filled Christmas letters every year, like 10 pages long because 10 pages only needed one stamp. So I would send them, you know, because I lived in different parts of the country. So I'd send them out. And my family and friends were always telling me, Sue, you need to write a book. You need to write a book. And I was always like, who wants to hear my adventures other than you guys? So I just kind of never really thought seriously about writing a book. But then when I went to Africa or Tanzania, It was just such a moving experience and something that I just really felt the world could benefit from here. I felt like I finally had something to say that was worth saying, if that Mm -hmm. makes any sense. And I made a promise before I left Tanzania, I made a promise to our Tanzanian Game Scout that I would try to share with the world what it's like to live in rural Africa and and the, the issues they deal with. And basically alleviate some of the misconceptions about Africa and and let the reality come through. So anyway, I didn't really know what I was promising when I made that promise. (laughs) (laughs) And it's probably a good thing I didn't, but it kind of evolved into Cries of the Savannah. I mean, I came home and I tried to talk to people about what I learned, but it just was never enough. And then I just well, I wrote a long Christmas letter again about it. And then people said, Sue, a couple of people said, I'm going to Africa because of this Christmas letter. So then It made me think, you know, I think I could develop this into a book. And that's kind of, it kind of evolved into Cries of the Savannah. I'm curious. So clearly you're used to writing about your adventures. So I'm wondering whether you took like a lot of notes while you were over there or like, how did that go if you weren't intending to write the book when you went on the journey? Well, thank goodness, Sue, which is the other, the other girl we went with was named Sue too. Um, she had been on, I know, isn't that, and her middle name's even the same as mine. That's oh my amazing. gosh, that's funny. 
that crazy? But anyway, she had been on safaris before and she had told me, Sue, take a journal because you will forget everything. So much happens in a day and you think you'll remember, but you won't. The days all just kind of start meshing together. So she suggested I take a journal and I did and I had it with me all the time. So anytime we stopped, I would write down or jot down the animals I saw or what happened or I would just jot everything down as I went. So that was really helpful. And then, of course, I took zillions of pictures because, you know, you are in Africa. <laughs> and I'm not one of these people. You, you know, it's hard to get good pictures because we weren't in a game park. So getting pictures of animals was really difficult. You know, they hear a vehicle, they run. So I have a lot of animals going, you know, their butts going into the bush. <laughs> so I had took a lot of pictures of them making mealy meal, of them cooking, of our camp. I like of all of the things, the processes and much more than than the animals. So my pictures really help document it. And then the third thing is because Lillian, because of the magic of the internet, I was able to stay in contact with Lillian, our game scout. And she's mm -hmm. 23 years old and she has speaks pretty good English and she is young and has a mind like a steel trap. So because of the internet, I could get on WhatsApp and message her and say, what was the name of that river? Or what did we do that day? Or I can't remember this the name for this Swahili word. I mean, she, she could answer me within seconds, you know, unless she's on patrol When she's on patrol. I'd sometimes have to wait two weeks cause she's out of service. But when she wasn't on poaching patrol, I could have her there to, you know, fill in the blanks, so to speak. That's really helpful. I do feel, you know, having read several chapters so far that it's just so rich in detail. So I was really curious about that. I was like, wow, you never intended to write it before you went. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing the detail you get. So I think that's really to be commended. Well, thank you. I, I tried. How long were you in Tanzania for? About three and a half weeks. Oh, wow. With, including travel time and stuff. And you're with, what's really special about it is because we weren't on an ecotourism safari, we were with the same group of people for that whole time. We had 21 Tanzanians representing six different tribes taking care of us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I always thought of myself as pretty low maintenance, but, you know, it took 21 people to, to <laughs> keep four Americans having a shower and uh, food. And there's just so much involved when you're in rural Africa. I mean, we had to take a two and a half hour bush plane to get to where we were at in Africa. So there's no hotels, there's no hospitals, there's, you know, as a dirt runway that we landed on, um, we slept in tents, everything's very rustic, there's no grocery stores, there's nothing like that. So, and just the simplest things like, like water, for instance, you know, we take that for granted. But for me to have a water, sh a shower, they had to literally scoop it bucket by bucket out of the dried up riverbed, haul it to a barrel, heat it over a fire, put it back in a bucket, crawl up a ladder and dump it in a tank above my tent. Oh my so gosh. there's a lot of work involved in everything they did. And um, so after I was there a few days, I, I came to understand why it needed 21 people to do this <laughs> <laughs> But that is why we built such good connections because we were with that same, like we weren't jumping from spot to spot and meeting new people. We, we were with those people, you know, all day long, basically. Yeah. I'm curious uh, about your process in writing your memoir. Did you, I assume there must have been some element of plotting involved given, well, you seem to have letters. So you must have, I guess, had that to, to go off a little bit and your journal. So I'm, I'm just curious how, how that looked. Well, 
I had no idea what I was doing. I'm going to be totally honest. I had no idea what I was doing when I started writing this book. And I just started writing. I kind of, for me, it was kind of, I think I'm a cross between what you guys call pansters and plotsters because yeah. in, in some ways it's planned because I went chronologically, like from day one right. yeah. to day through. But then as I went, I started meshing things up just a little bit to make it flow a little better or to make a point better. So maybe I might put in the book that it happened on day five, or really it might've happened on day eight. It's pretty much the same, but I just gave a little bit of lead way with that just to make things flow better, I guess. Mm -hmm. So I guess you could say it was a little bit of both. Cause I, I, with a memoir, at least it's kind of planned, you know, it's just like going through there since it's yeah. like, it all involves this 23 day period. You kind of know that what happens. So you have your plot line kind of worked out. It's just about how you piece it together, right? Yeah. Exactly. I do want to tell you this though, for a fellow authors, especially if it's your first book, do a little research first because I did this whole book and I wrote this whole thing and then I started figuring out what to do next. And I ended up having, I wrote so much that I had 800 pages of stuff. So, and my husband was so ready for me to be done. He was just like, just print it, just print it like that. I said, honey, no one needs to read 800 pages. And he says, well, the Iliad and the Odyssey is 800 pages. I said, well, I'm not the Iliad and the Odyssey. But anyway, I had to go back through and, you know, murder a bunch of little darlings, as they say, you know, I had to cut out a bunch of stuff, but yeah, so do a little research at least before you dive into that first thing. It'll it'll save you a lot of work in the long run. Yeah, I never even counted my words till I was ready to, you know, till I was done. I had no idea how many words I had there. So <laughs> I would say though, um, you know, in defense of that, sometimes the best way to write it is to just get it all down and then like it does take longer, but sometimes that's if you plot it, sometimes like, oh, I'm going to do this, 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 you can kind of avoid a little bit of that. But then at the same time, um, depending on your process, people find it can work better just to get it all out there. And then you get more quality writing, maybe, than if you try and hem yourself in. So it really depends on who you are and how it works for you. That's probably true, because it probably wouldn't have turned out like it did if I hadn't done all that and then backtracked a little bit or something so but yeah I think you you know on you do refine your process as you go along as well so it's interesting just hearing like we love hearing about people's different processes and like the way they do it it's like never even though like you know there's the broad categories of like plotting pantsing the somewhere in between category like it's never a hundred percent the same and there's always like something um, interesting about the way other people write that I'm like oh oh yes I should maybe try that myself or something <laughs> here's another kind of funny thing you know I wrote it and it took me two years to write because like I said I didn't know what I was doing and I just kept writing all these stories and then I did get better as I went because I was used to writing those Christmas letters where you're just kind of you got 10 pages and you're just kind of throwing it out there and making it like exclamation point exclamation point and my husband told me and somebody else too said, well, you'll probably want to go back to those first few chapters and change it a little bit, which of course I've redone the whole thing. I don't know how many times, but at that point I was like looking at my husband going, oh no, I think it's probably so good by now. <laughs> and I went back and I was horrified when I read it. I was like, 
there must have been like 10 exclamation points on every page. I was just, I had to just really go back and tone things down and make it flow better. <laughs> it's just so funny. I was just way over the top. So you definitely develop as you go. You know, it's definitely a learning process for sure. And I was going to say, it must have been fairly evident over 800 pages, like your development as a writer. <laughs> like, yeah. like, oh, yes, I was doing this at page 500 and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. But I like how my husband put it, you know, you might want to read those for, which I would have reread them anyway, but it was just so funny because I was thinking, well, of course I'm going to reread them, but I probably won't have to do much to them. But yeah, I did have to do a lot to them. (laughs) (laughs) And then the editing started. (laughs) Um, So how did you manage to fit in your 800 pages of writing uh, with everything else going on in your life? What does your writing days look like? Well, I'm one of those obsessive people. I have a hard time managing, I guess, but my husband is a pilot. So he is gone for large chunks of time. So that Mm -hmm. gave me, and I was because of him changing his career and I had to quit my job because we were going back and forth to where he was stationed at. It wasn't feasible for me to hold a job anymore. Mm -hmm. So this kind of gave, it turned into my full-time job. And I mean, full-time, I would sometimes work when he was gone, I'd work nine in the morning till nine at night sometimes. I mean, of course, break in here and there for different things. But And then when he was home, I would tone it down to more like six or seven hours. But yeah, I was obsessed. I mean, I really, <laughs> really dove into it and didn't wasn't really good about rationing my time. My husband was so happy when it was done. He was like happy to get his wife back and he thought it was done. And then you get into the next steps and it's like, oh my gosh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out that the writing is the easy part. That's the sad thing. But- Surprise, this is only the first draft. <laughs> but now I do, I mean, now I kind of do it like feast and famine because when Rick's home, I don't spend as much time at the computer, but when he's gone, which like today, he's gone, you know, I can work as much as I want to work. So I kind of do mine and I cram it and then I might take a block of time off and then I cram it and take a blank time off. So that's kind of how it works for me. That sounds quite good. <laughs> like, you know, getting a lot done and then you're like, oh, a few days to decompress uh, and then like back into it. It, do- it does work good. That would be my ideal way of working because I get kind of obsessive about projects too, but at the moment it's more like an hour or something like each day, which is very like steady kind of slow progress. But had I the time, I would totally do it that way. (laughs) Just be like (laughs) tunnel focus. When you have kids, it changes things. I mean, you can't, you know, that's one thing good when Rick's gone, like I have no distractions. I mean, my grandkids, but I usually know when they come over. So it's, it's not the same as having somebody come in to ask you a question when Rick's home. It's really, I hate to say that, but it can be really distracting. You're, you know how it is when you're writing, you're in this thought process and you're, I'm in Africa, I'm in Tanzania and I'm explaining some scene. And then he comes in and asks what I want for dinner. And it just, <laughs> yes, that's exactly oh. what happened to me today, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and it wasn't even like, I'd, I was sitting down there and I was like, oh, you know, I'm trying to focus on like editing this, this chapter. And then my husband is like, asks me a question and I was like, okay, yeah, but I don't want to deal with that right now. I'm, I'm focused right now. Like we'll deal with that later. And then he's like, a second later, he's like, what are we going to have for dinner? <laughs> I was like, you're serious? <laughs> 
And he's like, but, well, we have to take meat out of the freezer. And I was like, well, you're probably right, but at the same time. <laughs> I know. It's so, I feel bad because I don't mean to ignore them because they're they're important too, but it is yeah. hard when you're in the writing process. You know, those little distractions can really throw you off. But anyway. Yes, I, t- I totally get it though. Like, you know, love them to pieces and then you're like, you want to put up like a do not disturb sign. <laughs> I lock on That's a pain of death. <laughs> <laughs> so how was your publishing journey with this? Did you get it published through a publishing company or a self-publisher? I sent out one query letter. And when I started studying the whole query process, I was just overwhelmed with it all. I'm just like, who wants to hear from me, a first-time author? And anyway, I just decided to do the self-publishing route. So that's what I did. I published on KDP. And um, then I have now just... so, And it's been a slow process. You know, I did that. And now now I'm finally going wide where I'm finally getting my book out into the Barnes and Nobles and the everything. I finally got it on Ingram. And then I just finished my audiobook. So I didn't do it all like before I released. I've just kind of done it as I could. But um, it seems to have worked. I, and I've spent a lot of time on marketing and stuff with social media and going to events and stuff. So but anyway, yeah, I just went to self-publishing route and and that worked for me. I think you've done very well for going that route with just your, you know, having a first book and having it look really professional because like, you know, sometimes you can kind of pick, which is not like necessarily a bad thing. Like it doesn't necessarily tell you anything about the quality of the work because I've read some really great self-published stuff that's maybe not like, I don't know, the cover just speaks a little bit self-published or something like that I don't know how you get that sense but with yours I was like I couldn't tell either way I was like you know it could could be the cover because I I had learned enough because I am a person who well I should have done beforehand but after once I was knew I was going to self-publish I really did research and watch tons of YouTube and all that stuff And I knew that I had to have a professional looking cover and I was not the one to do it because I would have had an acacia tree and a lion, but I was fortunate to, you know, have contacts from Africa. So I wanted to keep as much money in in Africa as possible. So my cover artist is from Africa. She's from Namibia. My editor is from Africa. Um, We had beta readers from Africa. So I kind of kept all that there and tried to get to make sure I was representing anything right. And of course, Lillian read the whole book. Yeah, that's my cover artist. She just did a magnificent job, I think, on the cover. Yeah, definitely. The cover is amazing. I was just looking it up. It looks, (laughs) ah, I love the lion with the, ah, it looks great. (laughs) Just great. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I think she did a great job. I, I didn't know what to even tell her, you know, so I just kind of gave her free reign. I mean, they read the book and my editor is really passionate about the subject matter too. So she worked with the graphic artist or with the artist to, and they came up with this creation and I was just, oh, I was thrilled. It's very professional and very well done. So we've talked a little bit about, you know, that it's a travel memoir of your time in Africa, but do you want to give a sort of brief summary of what the book is 
kind of about because it goes a little bit deeper than just your average kind of African safari. Like, you know, it was a, a game hunt and which I feel like people are going to get like a different idea of if you just describe it like that, you know, like because the the book goes so deeply into the conservation of African species as well. So do you want to give us a rundown of what it's about? Yeah. I mean, I... It is based on the backdrop of a big game hunt. I'm I'm not a hunter, but I grew up in a hunting family. You know, I grew up eating deer meat and all that stuff. So I understood sustainable use of wildlife and I understood hunting for meat. But I was really torn on the whole concept of hunting African animals because I was so in, so infatuated with the those what that wildlife. So I was really my husband's a hunter, and when he wanted to go to Africa. I was just really torn with it, but I, but I didn't want to miss Africa. I mean, I've dreamt about it my entire life. So I put on my big girl pants, as I like to say, and I went. And I just learned so much. And it just blew all my misconceptions. There are so many misconceptions we have about Africa. And by getting to be good friends with the, the people and the crew of, of um, Masimba Camp, I learned so much. And I learned just about so many things. And I under, came to understand why the sustainable use of wildlife is so important in Africa and, and other, you know, Africa. When I say Africa, there's a lot of some countries are hunting and some are not hunting. It is 54 countries, but basically we were in Tanzania. But it is so important to preserve habitat and to put a value on the animals because, quite frankly, the Tanz, you know, the local people that live with elephants and lions and leopards, they don't necessarily like having them as their neighbors. I mean, you know, they're, they're deadly and they can wipe out a villager's crops in a night. So you, you have to give them reason to pr- protect wildlife. And uh, it's just, I, I just saw things from a whole different perspective. And I just felt like I needed to share what I learned about while I was over there. But, but I hate, like, the book is so much more than about hunting because there's, you learn about the people and you learn about Tanzania and you learn about Africa and you learn about the wildlife because I dive pretty deep into each animal and its effects on conservation and people living beside it. And like a hippo, you know, we think they're really pooly little animals, but hippos are deadly. I mean, over 500 people a year die from hippos and those people, those women have to walk sometimes two to five miles a day to get water. So they have to confront these creatures to get their water and crocodiles too. I mean, I don't, thousands lose their lives to crocodiles each year. So living with the creatures we love and adore is way different than sitting in your living room and watching them on National Geographic. So I'm just trying to give people the other perspective and take rural people into consideration. Does that kind of answer? Does that kind of? Yeah, no, I think that does. You know, it's a really hard thing to encapsulate in like a, a kind of blurb <laughs> um, <laughs> as to the types of issues that you cover in your book and like the description that you have of, you know, the habitat and of the people and the type of lives that's led over there and why, why controlled hunting might be beneficial ra- rather than, you know, just trying to save every animal um, which is going to eventually like destroy the ecosystem, right? So I think like you've done a really good job of portraying all of that. And I'm just curious as to 
whether you've had any like I guess it's a controversial topic is what I'm saying and whether you've had any like kickback against it and how have you managed with that oh, yeah I get death threats oh my god sometimes. oh my god that's yeah. awful I'm sorry recently but I've had somebody say they're going to shoot me in the spine so I'd have to wear diapers be pre- prepared to wear your diapers you know I mean people if they could just all I'm asking is people read it with an open mind and come to look at the viewpoint of the African people and see it from their viewpoint. But mostly I have such amazing support. Like a lot of people stumble upon it and read it and they, it totally changes their whole conception of what you want to call trophy hunting, which I hate that word anyway, but um, because that even in itself is misleading. But Mm -hmm. I have had so much good feedback whose people's minds have totally changed. And I've had just wonderful support and feedback. So that part is really good. But yeah, I still get, you know, reviews once in a while that just want to call me a liar and want to, you know, it's one thing when you, they don't like your work or the way you write, but when they're Mm -hmm. personally attacking you, it's, that's a little more difficult sometimes. Mm-hmm. Do you have any tips like for anyone who might be writing about a controversial topic? Because I feel like these controversial topics are so needed in our society to actually dissect and break down and, and so that people aren't like kind of running away from the big issues. But do you have any tips for anyone writing about a controversial topic or how to manage the feedback? I hate to say this, but I think you just have to be brave. Because like my husband wanted me to publish under another name. And I said, no, I don't think that's right. If I'm going to say this stuff, I want to stand behind it. I don't want to hide, you know. So so I did that. But you, And then you do kind of learn to, you do have to get a tougher skin, I guess. And you just got to feed off of the people that have really read your story and it resonated with. And, and people that support you. I mean, it's good to always look at all viewpoints because that's what makes it good. But those ones that are just the mean ones, the ones that are just like that, you just kind of have to let them roll off your back as much as possible. And that was hard for me in the beginning, like on social media, I would try to engage with all these people and try to, but it, it was just, it sapped my energy and it just drained me. So I finally learned if people actually have an interest and want to understand, I will engage with them 100%. But if they're just going to call me names and, you know, threaten my life and things like that, then I I just have to block them. It's just not worth my energy anymore. And I think we just have to, that's just what we have to get to. It's Yeah. But it's a shame people can't just open their minds. I'm not trying to say anybody has to agree with anything. It's just open their minds to see two sides of the equation. I agree. You know, like it's like putting yourself out of your own experience, I think is so important and not done enough in this world you know and I quite frankly was guilty I went over there with these misconceptions and you know and then as I'm on the ground and I'm getting beaten by you know accosted by titsy flies and they're sucking the blood out of me and there's hospitals aren't you know eight hours away and you're 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 seeing things in a whole different way you know because a lot of people think I was probably one of them well why can't ecotourism save all the wildlife but what people don't understand is that ecotourism is pretty much already being used in the places that it works. Hunters are in areas that most photo tourists don't want to go. It's either too remote. There's not enough wildlife that they want to see. There's not the wildlife they want to see, like rhinos or whatever animals, species they're looking for. 
Um, and there's no infrastructure. They're not close to airports. So hunting more than anything preserves habitat by spreading out the money into all these, all across Africa and the hunting nations, you know, instead of just concentrated places by the national parks. This interview is so like interestingly placed for me. So you can obviously tell in the background (laughs) that my family is a family of hunters and my husband and Dan, everyone hunts. But literally a couple months ago, they met someone who had just come back from a big game hunt in Africa and was telling them all about it. And we were all like, oh, that's quite interesting. Like, don't know how, you know, not sure how to feel about that. But he was explaining how, he, you know, he only went to the places where they like feed the tribes with the animals they hunt and et cetera, et cetera, yes. et cetera. And I was like, oh, okay, that's kind of interesting. But now like you've, your book has like randomly just like dropped into my realm of knowledge now at exactly the right time. I'm like, oh, that will probably answer a lot of the questions that I had about that. Cause it was, you know, I hadn't really, especially in New Zealand, we don't come across a lot of people who've been hunting in Africa. It's like quite far. Well, you know, it's kind of one of those things, even hunters, I think it's like 80% of the population support hunting as long as it's for meat. Mm -hmm. But they, when, but people go to Africa, they call it trophy hunting, which instantly puts a negative connotation on it. Mm -hmm. But there is not one drop of meat that goes to waste in Africa. The, the, the saying is the only thing left is the wet spot. We were so far from the villages that we, our people had to dry the meat. So it was all cut into strips and hung on clotheslines to dry into jerky. Um, in other places, the villagers come right to it and get the meat. And it's a little different in every nation, like in Namibia and stuff. Some of them own the ranches and they get the meat and give it to the people or they sell the meat, but none of it goes to waste. So it's kind of, and that's one of the biggest things about hunters and people in general. They assume people go over there and chop off the head and leave it lay on the ground, but it's, it's just not what happens at, at all. And that's and that's just a minute part of why it's so important anyway. But yeah, it's interesting to to hear that. Just one of those, you know, two things colliding at a similar time. <laughs> like, oh. I don't believe in coincidences. So I always <laughs> think things happen for reasons. <laughs> I think what's interesting, and you had mentioned in the sort of opening part of your book as well, is that like for the African animals, people kind of attach like a, a almost like a different, you know, get kind of attached to the idea of like these really big um, and amazing looking creatures. And so that when it comes to like the idea of hunting them, it's really hard to put the the two together. But, you know, like when you describe about like the government's controlling this as well. So, you know, they'll look up the population and they'll be like, you know, we've got this many of this creature and this is gonna, you know, like there, there's a bit of science behind it as to like the balance of the ecosystem and what it can handle in terms of these creatures and in terms of the the land as well and what the land can sustain so I think um, when you describe that in the book as well it makes a lot of sense and I think that's the bit that people were sometimes missing as well is that you know these animals some of them might not actually live or well, they definitely wouldn't and like other species would suffer if it wasn't like if this sustainability through hunting wasn't actually utilized as well. 
Yeah, I mean, they definitely, there's a quota system. And in the past, I'm not going to say everything is perfect over there. There are some places that, you know, had some corruption at times and that has all worked through, but you don't throw out the, you know, the bath or the baby with the bathwater, so to speak, as they say. But so it always has room for improvement. But all in all, um, they do have quota systems. And some of the thing people don't realize is we're mainly targeting old males past breeding age. So like you can, it's not like you're just going there. And like I said, these animals are in hunting concession. They hear your vehicle, they're gone. You have to stalk them and track them, try to get close enough. And you will spend days doing this. But, and when you do get close enough, you might find out like the animal's not old enough. He's only eight years old. He needs to be at about 12 years old. And of course, that's why you have pH with you because they can tell by looking at the horns. They can tell by looking at an animal, how old an animal is. And yeah, if he's too young and he's still in breeding age, he's off limits. So, um, so the sacrifice of those few, those older ones really preserve habitat for the rest. And like you said, the whole, um, population thing, um, you know, conservation in Africa is so, so complex let's just use examples for a real quick example. There are certain nations that maybe they don't have enough elephants, but Botswana, for instance, has over 120,000 and they have way too many. They're destroying the habitat for themselves and other creatures. Kruger National Park even has like, I think 17,000 too many elephants that was for that park because in the beginning they, they tried to put all these water sources in because tourists love elephants, but now it's destroying the park because there's no management and they can't call them. So what's going to happen when there's just nothing left for these elephants to eat? They eat four to 500 pounds of food a day. So, you know, it's a big management problem for sure. Mm -hmm. And they destroy crops. I mean, once their, their food's gone where they're, you know, they go into a village, they destroy their crops. And then those people might not be able to eat for a year. I mean, that's their little two acres of crops sustains them for a year. So you could imagine somebody coming in and just wiping out everything you had in a night. It's, they're not as fond of these animals as we are. So, you know. Yeah. And lions, like about a year and a half ago, four kids were in, you know, it's a cattle society over there. Rural Africa is a cattle society. So these four kids were brothers, were rounding up the cattle and they were attacked by lions and all three of them were killed. Um, one brother was able to get up a tree, but he didn't only have to watch his brothers be killed. He had to watch his brothers get eaten. So that's things we can't, you know, we just can't even fathom something like that. So you have to put yourself in their shoes and they have to have a say in management policies because they're the ones living with the animals. Yeah. It's fascinating. <laughs> fascinating topic. Really interesting. Yeah, it's one of those things you go down a rabbit hole. Once yeah, I know. I'm suddenly like, I have so many questions, but I'm like, oh. oh. When I came home, I just, I'm like, okay, I learned all this, but now I need to back it up with non-hunting sources. So I researched and researched and, oh my gosh, then you just learn more and you learn more and you learn more. And it's just, yeah, it's crazy. Now you know why I got to be 800 pages at one point. Yeah. <laughs> I'm starting to get a picture of why now. Yeah, it's a big topic for sure. I mean, people are well-being. People, you know, people are just say giraffes. They're trying to put giraffes on the endangered species list. And yeah, in some nations, they are endangered. But those nations don't have well-managed hunting is the funny thing. I don't want to say funny. But out of the seven nations that are they're endangered, they, those aren't 
well-managed hunting nations. The w- nations that have well-managed hunting, giraffe populations are doing very well and growing. So you can't t- take a one-size-fits-all thing for all nations of Africa. So it's just, oh, it's just a crazy subject. You just go down all of these little rabbit holes. For sure. And I think in some ways that kind of begins to answer the next question that we have for you, but I still wanted to ask it is, are there any other challenges that you had in creating your memoir? Well, just, I did do a lot of research because, and I you wanted to use non-hunting resources. So I use biologists and conservation organizations and things like that because I didn't want to, um, and I also read the other side. You know what I mean? I read both sides of the equation. So I had a well-balanced view. And then I had to take my kind of common sense and say, well, like once the, the, the like the anti-hunters say, they, they they leave out a lot of parts of the equation. Like they never mention that the meat's getting eaten. They they always there's always something left out of the equation. So, but anyway, I back up what I learned with non-hunting because I didn't want to be it to be tainted by the hunting industry. So mm-hmm. Cause I'm still a non-hunter, you know, and, and I'll be honest, I, no offense, I am married to a hunter. I grew up in a hunting family, but I didn't do this for hunters. I did this because of wildlife and the people of Africa. And I fear for Africa. I mean, I am so worried about what is going to happen for their future if they're not allowed to make their own decisions about wildlife, because ultimately, you know, it, it, it will be devastating to the people and wildlife of Africa. So I guess maybe my, my other downfall was just that I get so, emo- as you can tell, I get very emotionally attached. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'm very, I'm very emotionally attached to the issue. And because I just, and I've been to Africa twice since that was supposed to be our once in a lifetime trip, but it's really hard to go to Africa just once. It just gets in your blood. There's just something about it. It just, it changes you. It changes who you are and how you think about things. And so I, um, I've been back since, so I've met continued to learn and I've continued to meet amazing people and see things firsthand. I've seen areas that where there's no, where there's not well-managed hunting I have seen no wildlife. Um, I have been to where there's people will do anything for a little bit of protein. I mean, I've been to these places, so I see it from a whole, and it touches me so emotionally. So that's, it's hard to shut that off sometimes. So maybe that's one of the downfalls. I don't know if that you call that a downfall <laughs> I, or not. No, I definitely wouldn't. I think that's a strength. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a strength and like I can no, I well, I know that it, it would be a challenge as well to, you know, you, you also want to be able to portray it as cleanly and as as well as possible so that you're doing the issue the most justice. But at the same time, I think your passion for it is a strength. Oh, thank you. I hope so. <laughs> so given all of your additional exploits into Africa and, you know, it sounds like you've done a lot of traveling, do you have any other projects on the horizon that are coming up? Yes. Um, I swore this was only going to be one. I even promised my husband <laughs> that at one point, but I've been to Namibia and then I've been to Mozambique and each, each country in Africa is so different and their wildlife policies are a little different. So I think I'll write my next one about Namibia. That was the second place we went. And Mm -hmm. so I will do kind of the same. It won't be as long, but I'll tell about the adventure and I'll kind of weave in a little bit of the facts as I learn 
because um, they do more game farming, game ranching in, in parts of Namibia, and then the other part is run by the communities. So it's okay. a little different than Tanzania. So it'll be able, it'll be a chance for me to to still tell the adventure and weave in a little bit about Namibia. So that's my next project. And then I'll do Mozambique because that was another wholly different nation than the mm-hmm. other two. So, And something that I wanted to mention that we had talked about um, through email, Sue, was uh, your upcoming release of the audio for your Cries of the Savannah. I think yeah. that's going to be very exciting. You've included some actual animal sounds and stuff, which is woven in very nicely, I think, actually. Like it really puts you in the situation because I listened to a little bit of the file that you sent us. I'm <laughs> Do you have, have to a- say, I'm really sorry. sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt <laughs> you. I'm so excited about the audio book because I, well, you know, again, because I'm so passionate about it, but yeah, I, I was able to include animal sounds. You know, you'll hear lions and hippos and baboons and you'll hear hyenas and you'll fe- you'll hear what I'm hearing when I'm laying in that tent and at different points through the book, I try not, I just try to weave them in and out. Like I don't try to overwhelm the book with them, but I want people to get a sense of what it was like to lay there in that tent or to be in that environment and hear those animals. Um, so that's really exciting. And another exciting thing is um, Lillian is a guest speak, does guest narration in the last chapter. So yeah, I was Very able cool. to do that from, so I was just really, people will actually, after getting to know her through the book, they will actually get to hear her voice in the last chapter. So that's really exciting. And it'll be, it's already available on my website and also on like Spotify and the other, about 10 or 11 of them. I'm still waiting for approval from ACX. They're taking longer for some reason. Um, I did, I don't know. I think I did the credits wrong at first, but I've been accepted to a bunch of them. The rest should be, hopefully it'll be available everywhere soon. Or I shouldn't say everywhere, but like 30, I'm on Find Away Voices. So it should go to all those places Uh, and then plus Audible. And on my website, keep her on my website because it's direct. I used (laughs) BookFile to deliver it. How exciting. Did you do most of the narration yourself? I did it all myself. And I have... Like I like to joke that I'm now out of the closet because I literally made my walk-in closet into a recording studio <laughs> and I spent four months in there. I mean, I had a, I even put a mattress, I had a shelf because even it was still bouncing off the ceiling. So I had to put right, a mattress yeah. up the shelf and then all the clothes and it was really worked out as a good studio, but I was literally in the closet for, because I probably recorded it, to be honest, it probably took me. I bet you, oh my gosh, three, four, five times. And then I edited it myself too. So I had to listen to my voice a million times and I'd have to go back in and, you know, sometimes you slur your word or you don't pronounce something right. And I'd have to change it. So I was in and out of the closet for four months. (laughs) So yeah, it's me. And so hopefully people don't mind my voice because they're going to hear it if they, if they order the audio book. And then I would get so emotional when I was reading it. I would, I would be back there in that time and place and I would be trying to hold back the tears. And so, yeah, it's kind of, it was quite the project. It sounds like quite the project. I did a little <laughs> bit of recording for an audiobook recently, like a group project. Just had to read a few poems and a short story, but I can, you know, you do quite a few takes and you're like, oh, this is only like a 10 line poem. I can't imagine doing the entire book or the <sighs> length of time it would take. It, it was hard. You would think you'd be able to read your own material easily, especially because I've read it so many times at this point. <laughs> but it's not. You know, you 
it's still hard to read without screwing up. You know, but yeah. I did learn as I went that you screw up. If you're better off to fix your mistake it, it right then. Yeah. So I, I am learning as I go. I think, you know, like learning off these these podcasts, I feel like, you know, a lot of editing goes into sound files and things. And once you sort of know that, I think the odd trip wouldn't be like the end of the world. You just need to stop, say the sentence again, (laughs) (laughs) continue, but it it would take a lot of time and effort. We haven't done ours yet for that reason. I even learned, I think they call it the punch and roll technique where you press a button. Like if you know you screwed up, you press a button and it basically goes back. You can set it to five or 10 seconds. So you get to hear your voice and then it stops and then you can just continue on. So that made it way better once I learned that. So anyway, that's something to keep in future if you guys ever do that. So do you think you'll do yours as an audiobook? There's challenges. Ours is multi that's multi-perspective with um six oh, different okay. viewpoints. So I feel like that I don't I always imagine it to be more of like a dramatized rather than what having one narrator having like different voices for the different perspectives. So finding enough people who's well spoken enough <laughs> and <laughs> yes. not like paying cuz if you paid like six different narrators, it would be like a phenomenal cost. So yeah. yeah. That's why I did it this way. That's another, I could have, I couldn't have afforded to hire this out and do it. So, but I was, again, I was so passionate about just another way to get it out into the world that I um, tackled it on my own. And like I said, it's kind of like the book I lived, I learned as I went and made a lot of mistakes, but it turned out, pretty darn good I think so excited about that yeah so anyways we're coming up to you know running out of a bit of time so was there anything else that you wanted to talk about that we haven't covered yet I don't think so I think we gave people pretty good idea of what it's about and what's going on and about my writing journey so I can't think of anything offhand but I appreciate you guys having me here (laughs) no worries you gals, I say guys in our part of the world. I don't know if that's right or not, but anyway. Uh, fine for me. <laughs> <laughs> so where can people find your books and how can people get in touch with you if they'd like to, if they're passionate? And well, we, we don't want the people who, like, you know, <laughs> if, if someone genuinely wants to get in touch with you, how would they go about that? <laughs> well, the easiest way, well, I'm suetidwell61 at gmail.com, but you can just go to my website, which is really simple, suetidwell.com. So if you go to my website, um, there's a contact page there, and then there's an email sign up if you want that. But um, contact page, that'll take me right to my, your, my email. And you can also order the books there. You can get signed copies, or you can order the um, ebook there. And then also I'm on Amazon, and then the audiobook will soon be I'm um, hoping to go wide soon. So hopefully you'll be able to order it in libraries and things like that soon too. But that's not, I just submitted it today, as a matter of fact, to Ingram. So I just got accepted. So it'll be a little while before that's out. Exciting. But, uh, anyway. Just before we finish this up, I wanted to thank you so much, Sue, for coming onto the show. And I've really enjoyed hearing about um, your memoir and hearing about your experience and the I guess the the change in perspective that you went through to get this book to the world, I think it's a, quite an important book to get through to the world as well. So 
um, I want to commend you on a very well-written book. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. And I just, I guess I can say if, if for those of you who do read it and do gain anything from it, I just want you to, I say, fight for Africa. And I don't mean with your fist, but like when you hear somebody talking about it, you know, tell them what you learned or share your, what, you know, the experience. But anyway, so that's my main takeaway from it. And Sarah and Ashley, I really appreciate you having me on here. And it's fun talking about, I, I never get sick about talking about Africa. And, and it's fun to talk about the writing journey too, because I made plenty of mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> I think everyone does. <laughs> no, I really enjoyed hearing all about Africa. And you've really uh, piqued my interest about sort of reading about the other side of hunting, not just, you know, the people going in to do big game hunting or quote unquote trophy hunting, but the people living in Africa and sort of how, what benefits or maybe not benefits uh, that come from it. So I think it's a very, it's controversial, but in a good way, I think, you know, you really want, like you've said, people to go in with an open mind and be open to learning something new and maybe having their ideas change. So thank you very much for sharing all of that today. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you for allowing me to. So if you would like to be on an author spotlight section like Sue just has been, you can head on over to our website, lindersoncreations.com. Uh, hover your mouse over the podcast tab and you'll find a link to be featured on Dear Writer. And next time on Dear Writer, we have another one of our craft episodes, um, which is going to be about writing action scenes. So tune in for that. And if you'd like to know any more about us or any of our writing projects, you can visit us at lindersoncreations.com or get in contact with us on Facebook or Instagram under the handle lindersoncreations. And if you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to your podcatcher of choice. Happy writing, everyone. <laughs>